The Fujicast is an independent loading zone production. Kev, I've thought of what, what I want to spend the Euro millions on when we win it. We'll all be millionaires, Rodney. A couple of weeks ago, um, the uh, the good man, the Howling Bassett, Andy from Howling Bassett, you know the one? He, he took me on a cruise. Well, it wasn't really a cruise. We went uh, 10 miles out, nearly 12, in the, the Thames estuary to go and find some uh, old World War II forts that are very, very spooky. And I tell you what, it was, it was extremely foggy that morning, so the Howling Bassett's uh, howl was quite... It was the sort of thing, Kev, that you'd have been hiding under the pillow from. <laughs> or hiding behind the pillow, whatever the expression is. What an amazing place. But, Kev, if we ever win the Euro Millions, I'm buying. There's seven forts ten miles off land, and they are waiting to be done up. Well, I'll bring my paintbrush then. Well, you need, I think you'll need more than a paintbrush because they've rotted quite I'm a lot. Right, I can only do paint. I can only do painting. Well, is I that all you paint. can do? Well, we need welding. Yeah. We need welding. We need some plumbing done. No, I'll bring Gemma then. <laughs> she would be br- actually yes yeah, she would be absolutely perfect i'm telling you though, she's okay. plumbed all over kitchen this week bless well, her well there we go well she should have a lot of plumbing to do 10 miles out in the sea i can tell you but this place would be the ultimate photographic retreat kev yeah it does sound amazing yeah you're you're away from you're away from everybody we could have a tower yeah. each Hmm. Well, we can have more than one each. Well, no, there's only seven. Yeah, well, there's only two of us. Oh, I see the others as well, the family and kids, right, yeah. <laughs> it didn't yeah. quite work so, out. Do they have to come? <laughs> well, uh, no, actually, it could just be you and I. What would we do with seven towers, Kev? Mm. We need about a million and a half for each tower. So right. as, assuming we've won the Euro Millions, we'd have one for a photographic sort of retreat. Uh, the other one we could use as a chess palace. Chess palace, there we go. Right, we've got five left, Kev. What are you going to do with the other five? Um, Definitely one's going to be a, a champagne bar. No doubt about that at all. <laughs> so that's we've got four left, Kev. Uh, <laughs> did you, uh, talking of that, have you seen James Bond yet? No, I haven't. Oh, see, this would be a perfect James Bond lair for a villain. Yeah, yeah. Have you yeah. have you seen it? I have. Yeah, we went we went to the 4DX version. We had moving seats and water thrown at us. And Good all God, sorts. Kev! The, I mean, the most you usually do is miss Marple. The Fuji cast. How on earth did you make your way through that? It's a scary movie, Kev, in your language. The moving seats were brilliant. The movie was. Uh, yeah, I won't say anything, but don't spoil. But, but no spoilers. So you had water blown Let's in Let's just face. say the moving seats were worth it. <laughs> they weren't moving seats. They were Mertha Tidfield's ones. They're not being bolted down properly. There's an old woman behind me just kicking the seat. Rocking it, rocking it. <laughs> oh, sorry, Mertha. Um, so, yeah, so they squirted water at you and stuff as well? No. That was great, yeah, really cool, actually. I'd like to go and see, um, uh, you know, something like, uh, not a horror film, because I couldn't cope with that, but something that's, uh, you know, got a lot of, uh, you know, car chases and, and yeah. you know, bumps and bangs and, and all that stuff. But yeah, it's really very, very clever. You've just, descri- you've, just like des- you've just described James Bond. That's what James Bond does, doesn't it? Car chases and... He- Yes, the car chases were good, yeah, because the chairs moved. What about the romantic bit? Did the chairs move for, for the romantic part? Yeah, yeah that, that was all a bit uh, different. Did, did the kids I'm not get... saying it. I got in a load of trouble with the dad's group because, I, 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 you know, they were all going after me. Oh, no. And, and then they, they you, stopped talking to you me. You didn't tell them the end, did you? No, tell me. Uh, well, no, I'm not saying anything uh, because oh. I'm in already in so much trouble. But all I'll say is, all you have to do is type something into the internet, and you'll find it quite a lot. <laughs> okay, right. I don't have to be the the, the blame person. All no the time. more, no more, no more. You and your questions today from our uh, electronic mailbag, our private Facebook group as well. Questions from that. Um, today we have a, a book of the week. What's our book of the week, Kev? So today we have. And deciding which one we will do this week and which one we'll do next week. Actually, we'll do uh, yeah, we'll do Jay's one. We've got abandoned Tennessee Jay Farrell, who is a listener to the show. Yeah, and uh, yeah, he's he's now on like something like edition eight of this book. So this is the original one. He's, so that's what we'll talk about. I tell you what, he's got Kahuna's Jay to walk into these abandoned places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Would I you mean, not feel the, the stuff is is quite phenomenal? I yeah, have to say. yeah. I'm at that point where I've kind of run out of books. Have you? <laughs> For one, oh, and 
and, and I'm kind of looking through them all and thinking, have we talked about that one? And of course, I never really wrote down which ones we talked about. So um, yeah, we might be well, we might be a little bit like my radio show. We might be starting to some repeats might be creeping in. Rotate. <laughs> I mean, you can play Glenn Campbell more than once for heaven's sakes. I mean, you could come and borrow some of these, Kev. I mean, I don't want to make you jealous, but the the book the book fairy arrived yesterday and and dropped off uh, some plastic bags with more books. So mm. I've got here. What have we got here? Fifty hours. Uh, Eugene uh, Richards. I have just uh, put an order in from a books. Get a couple more. Yeah, this looks good. Classic cafes. Adrian Maddox. I mean, this so the classic cafes thing is something you would have wanted to start shooting in the seventies, though, isn't it? Really? Well, yeah, you say that. You know, it's like that. You know, we always say this, don't we? You know, well, it was, it was a lot better then. But you know, they, these pictures are only impressive now because of the the, the, the passage of time. Yeah, you know, it's like point. that that famous old. Um, saying isn't it a proverb it might even be that uh you know the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the next best time is now but you're right i mean it, it, it's it's less it's harder to get in, excited by it, i suppose yeah, especially yeah. with all of the, the i don't know if you saw the thing on um photo shelter this week it was shared on photo shelter right. and it was a real tirade of abuse at this street photographer who took this amazing picture of a, a mother and their and her two children on the train it's quite it's a famous photo it's a famous right. photo and um you know they called him a um i can't remember what they called him but a snake i think they said you know right. a snake of a photographer oh. so but yes anyway we, we digress come on we're meant to be keeping right, this yeah. short this week okay uh, um well Francis Bruce. I'm going to start with one. Is that all right? Francis Bruce. Yeah, uh, hi, Kev. Hi, Neil. Love the show. Yada, yada. Been listening since the start. Yada, yada. Now the world is sort of opening up again. I'm thinking of investing in some kit to take up street photography. I was just getting into it late 2019, early 21. Well, that's a long time between. Do you mean early 20? Anyway, with a setup I already have. And then the obvious happened. I've been looking at the Rico setup, which I love, but I'm also thinking of just staying with Fuji. I already have an XT2 with a 23 and 50, but I want something small and pocketable. I know you'll probably say X100, but um, what about an F or a V? Is the difference really that great? Keep up the good work, Francis Bruce. Yes, the difference is very great. Mm. I'd say it's 11. Ele <laughs> this one goes up to 11. Yeah, no, the difference is 11. No, it is It is a big difference. Better sensor, faster focusing, better filming, better film sims. Uh, flip down screen, better. It's the, it's the new lens. So all of the previous cameras had exactly the same lens. This is the newer, um, the kind of more um, quicker lens. So yeah, I mean, it's it's probably the biggest difference between the F and the V than between any of the other jumps. I would uh, say. And actually, if you look at the price difference, if you looked on, um, if you looked at a price difference of uh, an F and a V, it's not a huge, huge jump, is it? If you, if no, you were I mean, you, for can, second you can actually get these second-hand V's yeah. as well, which yeah. are, you know, reasonably priced as yeah. well. There's not but, a lot of, um, of course, it doesn't, you know, it does always, as always with these questions, it just comes down to budget. And ultimately, you know, we get these kind of questions quite often, you know, is it worth still having the previous one and blah, blah, mm. blah. Um, you know, the newest one will always be better in some way than the previous one. Always, right. you know, it's it's that's just the way it is. And then it just simply comes down to to budget. And if you you know if you have the budget but you're still unsure of which to which to get, get both. You know, hire hire one, hire the V. Yeah. Go to the camera shop, get your hands on an F, and decide that way. But yeah, my my, if you've got the budget, the V will be will be better. That's the one. Thank you, Francis. Right, Facebook. What do you what do you have from the Facebook group, Kev? Okay, Facebook. So as usual, I will start with the latest added question. Mike Garthwaite, mm -hmm. uh, what would I expect from a full-frame image compared to an X-T3 image? It sounds like a loaded question, Kev. I mean, he does actually go on to say that the full-frame camera that he's thinking of is uh, 24 megapixels, so pretty much the same in terms of megapixels. Uh, better better low-light well, performance? Uh, are we talking about performance? I mean, most people will assume that the, uh, the from, main from the, difference is the depth of field. 
Yeah, depth uh, of field, like, yeah. You know, and it will be, it's pretty minor, really. And noise, the, and the noise. The and noise at high. Um, right, so. Yeah, but he's referring to the image rather than the, the well, cameras, is, I think. So the, the, the look and feel of the image, yeah, the depth of field will be, depends on whether you think it's better or, or I, I prefer APS-C kind of depth of field processing myself, but some people really want what? that extra blurriness. Uh, yeah. Why, why do you prefer it? I just don't. Uh, you or know, is it it's, something you've got used to. I mean, I I understand and I like depth of field and I like you know I like using it especially in weddings with 56 mil to make something pop out. But I'm not overly keen on images where it's basically impossible to see what's behind it. You know, that's it's it's not a natural thing that we see with our vision. Mm. But of course, you know, it is, it's a very creative thing. And, you know, especially for portraiture and everything, some people do prefer that full frame yeah. um, aspect. And, and, it, and if they, you know, if they really want to kind of take that further, then they can, they can look at the medium format stuff, which is, which has, you know, even more of that kind of feature, yeah. if you like. But yeah, in terms of the image, I mean, less so now, but uh, he does specifically say the X-T3, which is is the latest generation sensor. Yeah. So less so now in terms of um, low light performance and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, back in the day, uh, full frame images would have given better uh, noise production at higher ISOs. I really don't think that's so much the case these days. I mean, it might be, you know, the scientists out there might might be kind of doing the maths now and saying, well, actually, Kevin, it is. Blah, blah, blah. Is that but what they speak like? <laughs> you, you know, Fujifilm and all of the other mirrorless cameras now are using yeah. backlit sensors and all that kind of stuff, which helps yeah. um, to mitigate that to a certain extent. So, yeah, I mean... I would just say it's down to the depth of field difference, really, that you're going to visually see. Um, I'm not sure whether we've done this one, but this one seems to be hanging about. At Check My Bad Self is his Instagram. Um, I did check it, first of all, to make sure it wasn't... Uh, anyway, hi, guys. A non-professional photographer here, Fuji user, uh, fan of the podcast. Short and sweet question. I've been getting better on photography over the years. Should I delete my older photos from Insta? Cheers, Adam. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Now, uh, I quite like, I really like going back and seeing somebody's history. And I don't think, you know, because I see a great image now, I think, wow, that's fantastic. If I look back as far as, I don't know, one, two, maybe more years, it doesn't make me feel any less about the photographer in, in terms of what their skill is, just because I see something right at the start of their journey where you think, oh, that's a, that's a bit sketchy compared to what you're doing now. I actually, I actually really enjoy seeing the, the progression. Yeah, well, there's two, there's two takes on this, isn't it? So he said he's not a professional photographer, I think, just a hobbyist. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. never just, case, Kev, never just a hobbyist. He is. In, in which case... Yeah, I mean, I would not see any reason to remove all the stuff because no. you know you're not you're not trying to impress anybody really. Where for a professional, I think it's slightly different. Um, yeah. I, I haven't removed anything from my Instagram as far as far as I'm aware, but I you know I have on my website removed all the stuff, um, all the blog posts and things like that that no longer kind of support the style and the the you know the way that I shoot. Yeah. So, you know, you do need to be a little bit careful, I think, as a, as a pro, especially in the wedding world, you know, if, if people are, are browsing your Instagram, for example, and browsing your website and they stumble across, uh, you know, a post from a long time ago and they look at that and they think, ooh, that's not very but good. But they're unlikely to find something from a long time ago on your Insta unless they're really sort of really peeling back the ears, are they? It's not like the algorithmic way that youtube works and in, in, you know one day one of your really old films suddenly catches some sort of attention and goes viral doesn't no, work that, the same way that's true it? that's true on instagram but it's it's not true on um anything else no so websites no, but he's talking but yeah you're right on yeah, instagram Insta. um however you know I, I remember not so long ago in fact one of my my clients the night before the wedding yeah. That I was photographing. I was lying in bed, and my phone started kind of pinging, yeah. and uh, and she'd literally started right at the beginning on my Instagram and was liking pretty much every picture right the way back. Oh, that's nice. Um, you know, and so you know she was liking them, which is mm. good. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know she was definitely going through it. So it was too late the night before her wedding if she looked at it and thought, <laughs> yeah. "Oh my god, what was Mullins doing? Oh, yeah. really? Is that the best he could do?" 
It's true. I'm looking at my, I've just lo- loaded my Instagram now. Yeah. I'm going to try and see if there's an easy way of doing this, which probably isn't. Easy way of what? How far back when I f- did my very first post on Instagram. Okay. I haven't, I didn't actually post that often on Instagram. No. I'm not sure it tells you the dates, does it? It just gives you how many weeks ago it was, I think. Oh my word. It's pretty I'm quick to scroll time. using a computer, actually. I'm scrolling quite quickly here. No, it is. It's just every time, you know, I'm kind of I'm back down to FDF in Argentina now. So it must be wow. 2017. Here we go. Right. Very first picture I ever took, I, I put on Instagram was 300. And, oh, wait, it, uh, March the 14th. What? Sorry, March the 14th, 2014. Mm. Uh, and it was a picture of a tree that I took on my iPhone. And that had 39 likes, three comments. Next picture was the X-Pro1, picture of the X-Pro1 that I'd had skinned. Right. Um, I bet that had a lot more likes. <laughs> 395 yeah. um, weeks ago. Yeah. But no, because, uh, you know, remember, I'd, I'd literally just started my Instagram at that point. So the 49 likes and six comments. Right. Uh, the next one was the script. Look at this. God, this is going back in. This is bringing back memories. My script for the book I wrote. 11 likes. Dog-eared and stuff. Yeah. Two comments. Script. And it did, and they oh the two comments were just pointing out your your spelling mistakes. Oh no, my edi- I had a proper editor for that. She had to work hard. I tell you, <laughs> isn't it funny to see pictures of uh, of young Rosa on there? Look, look, young Albion, young Rosa. I know. Hey, look at that. <laughs> so I don't know what's the answer to this, Kev. I mean, I personally think keep them. I personally think keep them. If if it's yeah, I do too. Yeah, yeah. let I mean, people I, see you. I, if you're professional or amateur, I I know I keep them. It's good I don't know to whether see. I have yeah. been through and removed some um, on Instagram or not. I really don't know wedding ones, but I looking back at these ones, these are mostly um, personal ones at the beginning. Um, then it's there's wedding ones ways, start yeah. creeping in. So the first wedding picture I put on was October the thirteenth, two thousand and fourteen. Yeah. Looked like the first wedding picture. Yeah, I'm not seeing any wedding pictures that I've I wouldn't be happy staying on there. I tell you what, um, Kevin, it's, it's, it, there's some randomness going on here. There's uh, there's that beautiful but but uh, very honest and very graphic picture of uh, the baby at the cesarean right next to a picture of a pug. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, yeah, that's right. That's when a photograph may have been born. And then next to it is a picture of some of the blokes at the uh, then, uh, rugby then game. Then there's yeah. a pug. And, oh, anyway, well, that shows that sort of that... Um, that, that, that whole thing about life, isn't it? People being able to see your life rather than just a curated run of wedding photographs, which I personally have, you know, I have on my, my Instagram, which I want to change. Still haven't gone back to Instagram for, for, my, for my wedding photography. I still haven't. Odd. I've got this thing. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I'm, I'm noticing more inquiries coming from Instagram again now. Yeah. Um, although I've also noticed that, Next year's next year's inquiries are, are they seem to be done basically because so many dates were taken up by the pandemic reorgs. Yes. And I think a lot of people who would organically have been planning their wedding now for next year are struggling to get dates. On the year after, perhaps. Wow. Yeah. So they'll 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 be clipping in. I had a I took a um booking the other day for 2025. You're joking. <laughs> oh, well, you're not joking. Wow. 2025. Blimey. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, is it your question or mine? I can't quite remember. I think it's mine. Go on then. Um, okay. So this is from Mark Farrington. Simple question. Developing a personal style, colon, creative stimulus, comma, or creative straitjacket? Mm, it's deep, isn't well, it? Well, it could be a straitjacket. I mean, we've discussed unbuckling that uh, that straitjacket. There's a very real sense of losing the ability to... To play, as our, our friend Terry in Tennessee would say, uh, to play in the creative playground. The, the wonder of, Kev, the wonder of being a photographer is in many respects, I think, the ability to, to find a left turn in the road that leads you to a fabulous new place where you can, where you can flourish. If you, if you tie yourself too much to one thing, you, you're going to miss that opportunity to try something new from the, from the visual spice right, Kev, aren't you? Yeah, you're right. I think for some people it can be you know you do kind of back yourself into a corner a you little do. bit yeah especially if you become well known for something specifically and if you if you fall out of love with the, that what you're doing or that style that you're doing or you know whatever it is or your processing style whatever and it, that, that can be a challenge yeah I can, I can see that but i remember kev times where you and i have talked about 
um, the the concept of doing slightly more uh, contrived a particular project uh, or product. I'm not sure I want to say too much in case you're still thinking about doing it at your weddings. But of course, that would take you out of your that would take you out of what you're well known for doing. So would that have you straight jacketed yourself for that other um, product? Yeah, I know what you're referring to, and and so no, I wouldn't. I don't think so because that's a that would be a completely separate product. You know, the the actual. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't do wedding photography in any other way. You know, I couldn't, I just couldn't, so it, I just couldn't do it. Um, it. I think this all does come down to what you think other people's expectations are of you. Yeah. Um, rather than what your own expectations are. So, you know, there are plenty of people out there that we've never, ever heard of who are making a lot more money than us, who probably aren't even on social media, who just basically do whatever pays the best. Yeah. They perhaps don't have a creative style, but they're just jobbing photographers who are making a very good living. Yeah. You know, are we are we getting into the realms of of being concerned about what other people are thinking of our stuff rather than what we think of our stuff? Don't know. It's hard to tell. Yeah, interesting, interesting angle on that one. Dominic Bugatto, enjoy the show. Had a quick question for the two of you. We we're firing through these this week, Kev. Yeah, I quite I quite enjoy occasionally putting some vintage glass on my X Pro Two. Combination really harks back to the feeling of when I shot film. The manual focus and character of the glass lend to the experience and the resulting images. Do either of you still put old glass on your digi cameras from Dom? Well, actually, um, we, we've we've had similar questions and similar conversations in the past, haven't we, about this? I, I do. I've got my uh, my lovely twenty eight mil vintage lens. That I I shove onto the um, onto the X Pro One, mm-hmm. uh, and I use that a lot. Actually, it's become a, a proper fixture. In the bag, it even has its own divider, Kev. Mm-hmm. What about you? You you must, I mean, you've got a fair few uh, lenses. I've got a couple you? of vintage lenses yeah. I literally never, ever use, oh. ever. What, what, never. What uh, focal length? Mine was 28, 28 mil. <sighs> uh, no idea. Oh, I've got, I got one with a uh, an adapter for the GFX, right. which is on the, the side of the cupboard with, full of all the other stuff that I bought that I, would, <laughs> I know I'd never use. Um, and then I've got a... Um, Mm, begins with M. M. Minolta. Minolta. Yes. Minolta. I've got a Minolta something or other, which is also on that side of the cupboard, which is for the APS-C stuff. Well, oh. you need to. I've got a Kipon adapter for it. Yeah. Which is also something I've never used. <laughs> we drove past a car boot the other day. There is relevance to this, and I said to uh, I said to Sam, we should just uh, take all the old kit in there. And she said, no, no, not to a car boot, because people will only ever want to spend ten pence on it. But actually, a, a, can you imagine a photographic car boot just for photographers who understand that everything is not going to be at 10p? They're going to have to spend a little bit more than that. But actually, they're still getting pretty good well, there's deals. Lots, there's lots of camera fairs they put in the yeah. um, in the old sheep market. But I've been to a few, Kev. I went to one in Hungerford. It was so expensive. It was almost like they thought, right, camera fair, double the prices. Yeah, you, you, you know, it's the thing is, it's much harder to, to kind of get a bargain or be an antique hunter or anything like that because of the internet and everybody can price things. Say you're going through your, you know, your camera collection and you've got something, you don't know what it is and yeah. you think, you know, Sam's happy to take that or you're happy to take that to the car boot sale and sell for 10 pence because you never use it and you don't know what it is and you never can't remember when you bought it and all that kind of stuff but uh, you know and then sam pops on the internet types in the the make and model and it's worth 12 grand you know and so there's research research can be done so much easier now than in the in the days before the internet where you could properly get proper bargains especially like antiques and stuff they keep they always talk about this on the antiques roadshow yeah it's like you know it's very difficult these days to to actually get a real kind of oh my word that's worth a lot of money yeah deal I'd just like to um, to underline, by the way, that Kev did just say antique hunt. I was thinking, <laughs> as he said it, I thought, what did he just say? Am I going to have to edit that heavily? <laughs> Things that cross your mind. <laughs> no, it was, it was the way you said it, Kev. I thought, he's got a new auntie. Oh, dear, that's disgusting. Right. Um, have we got time for another question, or is this time to a really good time to move on to a... Uh, I don't really feel that we should move on to a guest after that. Let's just do a very... <laughs> Let's do a very quick question first. A QQ. Have we got any QQs here? Let's do one from Mike. Listening from the Sunshine Coast, uh, Australia. Question for you both. If you could uh, only use two camera bodies at a wedding and they had to be the same model and make, what would you choose? Which lenses? There we are. Thank you, Mike. That's a that's a QQ. That'll do. You'd obviously go for the X-T4 now, wouldn't you? Uh, and the X-Pro3 is still my oh. preferred choice. But yes, the X-T4 I am using uh, now as well. 
But um, why, why because is that ibis? Ah, okay, that's the reason. If if X Pro had the ibis, you'd be on that like a yeah, whatever the analogy would be, like um, a rabbit up a drain pipe. There we go. Yes, that'll do. Right, I think we've nicely built in a barrier. Guest this week, who are we talking to, Kev? Uh, Alan. Ah, Alan Hewitt. Probably the finest wildlife photographer this side of Northumberland. Have you ever thought about doing wildlife photography? Uh, not really. I, I, um, I mean, Alan's work is just phenomenal. It is, I yeah. mean, it's it, it, this is this is what I would class as fine art wildlife photography. Yeah. It's not, um, you know, it's it, it's not the kind of stuff I would ever be at all capable of doing. <laughs> you know, he'll he'll do a lot of stalking and, and kind of there's a lot of patience involved. And Alan is a very gentle giant of a man. I can just see him visualise him now sat in a, a little green canvas tent you know, for 17 days, just contemplating the world and then actually, when the time's right, click, and then going home. Now that sounds the perfect way to live. Today we have a good friend of mine, I'd say, hopefully, I think he'll say the same thing, Alan Hewitt, who is a wildlife photographer from the northeast of England and a fellow Fujifilm ambassador. Alan, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Kevin, thanks. How are you? I'm all right, not too bad, not too bad. How is the, uh, how is the, um, the, the grey northeast um, the Great Northeast is probably very sort of um, what people associate the Northeast with at the minute. It's a bit great and drab and boring, but it's really not always like this. Normally, it's absolutely beautiful. We're very lucky up here, I think, yeah, um, in terms of countryside and beaches and, of course, wildlife. Yeah, of course. Um, I actually read somewhere the other day that the, uh, the best beach in the whole UK currently is somewhere up uh, between somewhere between Newcastle and the Scottish borders, somewhere up there. Yeah, it's probably um, either a place called Druridge or Bambra, um, which is, you know, Bambra's the sort of classic haunt for landscape photographers, actually, with the sort of beautiful castle in the background and various um, lovely sort of rock formations and lighthouses. You know, we are very, very lucky up here for a landscape photographer so i'm not quite sure why i don't do a little bit more of that to be honest <laughs> okay so we've uh well we've established where you are based and and uh you know you're, you're not necessarily a landscape photographer but tell us uh you know tell us how how did you because i know you used to be a paramedic um uh, how did how did photography come into your life how did you make that switch from full-time saving lives in ambulances to taking pictures of puffins on rocks in the middle of nowhere well, it's it's a good question because before I joined the ambulance service, um, I used to work for a property firm um, and I got made redundant. And I think the, the, the redundancy happened when the economy sort of crashed back in 2007. And I was always sort of thinking about, you know, what could I do in terms of photography as a career? And the only reason I decided to join the ambulance service was because it gave me a lot of time not being at the ambulance service as a, a development opportunity to, to go into photography. And I found the sort of time off, the, the sort of continental shift rotor allowed me to have three or four days at a time between working three or four shifts. And I, actually, I'm pretty sure I got made redundant because I spent most of my working day learning photography rather than actually doing what I was supposed to be doing to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I joined the Ammon service, I found I did a lot of landscape photography because at the time I just couldn't afford the um, the big lenses and things that are associated with wildlife photography. But I sort of sat there, you know, as, as landscape photographers often do. And I don't know if it's a bit of a cliche where they're sort of sitting there waiting for the right light, they're waiting for the, the sunset, the sunrise, something to illuminate a, a bit of foreground interest or a castle in the background or a lighthouse or whatever. And I used to sit there and what that actually did was sort of rekindle uh, an older passion for natural history. And I used to sit and look at the shorebirds, the waders, the migratory geese, the smaller birds. And I just used to think, oh, I really wish I had a longer lens. And eventually, you know, I managed to, to get myself something with a bit more uh, reach in terms of um, being able to take photographs of small species of birds. And that's when I sort of made the, the jump to wildlife photography. And I often found it a little bit sort of therapeutic as well, sitting in hides, just enjoying the peace and quiet. The only sounds were sort of bird song and things like that, and the occasional clicks of cameras from, you know, working in the ambulance service. We, occasionally we dealt with a lot of stressful um, issues, yeah. And it mm. was just great to be able to sort of get out there, and it was a good way of sort of clearing my head and and getting on with something and eventually things just fell into place and I started to to be able to monetize that and and here we are now a few yeah. years later 
Yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, regular listeners to the show and people who visit the Facebook group will be uh, well aware of your work because you, you know, you're a regular poster of images in in there, and uh, and they are amazing. They are absolutely stunning. Thank and you, uh, you know, I feel like they're not cliched. They're not contrived or anything like that as well. Um, I think one of the one of the first questions people might be thinking in their head is how do you make money from being a, a wildlife photographer? You know, how, how uh, pandemic aside, because I know that's affected yeah. everybody in different ways. Um, you know, how do you, where does the income come from? Is it, is it kind of workshops, editorial, magazine commissions? Do you sell prints? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of everything, really. There's no, I think gone are the days where you get a, a, a sort of a good commission just to go off and take photographs for, you know, a magazine that's very, very few and far between those kind of National Geographic type opportunities. So like you say, I do sell a few prints. I don't sell as many uh, as I would like to. It's not something that I, I kind of give a lot of time to. It's something that I really should try a little bit more. Uh, but a lot of it is doing sort of some magazine work, the editorial stuff, and I think blogs and online resources have now replaced magazines quite a lot. Mm. And, you know, there's paid content out there to be written. But most of it is actually getting out there with groups of people who want to learn the techniques associated with wildlife photography and whether we do that in very sort of controlled settings to teach um you know, autofocus, exposure, et cetera, in a, a falconry centre with captive-born and bred species, or whether we do that in the wilds of the Maasai Mara in Kenya or out in the Kruger of South Africa with usually photographers who are a little bit more experienced and, and want to sort of develop the photography in that way. Um, so there's, there's lots of different things come together to make it a, a sort of financially viable um, career, it's it, it is difficult. It's very hard, but I don't think any form, any genre of photography is is particularly easy at the moment. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And you know, it's I suppose it's kind of an inspiration for a lot of people to hear that you know you can actually do this because there you know there are a lot of what uh, good wildlife photographers out there who are probably struggling with a, a day job and would love to love to make that that flip. But you know, it sounds like that you you know you're you're doing everything right in that you're. Uh, you know, you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak, and, you know, spreading the workload and, and everything like that and, and doing well with it. Um, so uh, in terms of, I mean, uh, I don't know, is it, do you class yourself, are you a wildlife photographer? Are you a fine art photographer? How do you, what, what's the, what would you write on your business card? I think what I prefer to do is something that sort of reflects my style of wildlife photography, what I like to call myself. And, you know, we do have fine art photographers who are selling a lot of sort of prints, very sort of control lighting. And that's not really my style. Um, it's uh, what I prefer is a, to be a sort of natural history photographer. Um, more the last few years, my photography's kind of moved a little bit away from what I call a traditional portrait type of wildlife photographer and I spoke about this on one of the um one of the main stages at the photography show down in Birmingham the other week and what I like to do is a sort of contextual um wildlife photography approach and what I mean by that is to include habitat to include relationships with other species and to try and tell a natural history story I mm. don't sort of go too much into heavy sort of photoshopping or um, image manipulation. I try to show what is actually happening in the subject's habitat, what's happening around it, and bringing in elements of field craft to show what might perhaps might be behavioural with um, other species that are the same or a predator-prey relationship or mutually symbiotic relationships between species. So I don't think it's, it's, it's certainly not a sort of fine art. It's more about a natural history story in a still. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of summing it up. I think um, ever been, ever been in any tricky situations, ever had any large animals or small animals running at you or anything like that? Um, yes. Um a lot of this, I think there's a lot of kind of incorrect assumptions made about, particularly about the megafauna of Africa. Yes, it can be very, very dangerous, uh, but it's just about knowing what you are doing. You know, people say that hippos um, kill the most people every year and things in Africa. I've been very, very close to hippos 
um, on foot. I've been very, very close to hippos in a vehicle and they could and rhinos and elephants. They could easily turn the vehicle over and do what they like. But it's all about field craft. It's all about, you know, you approach a species when you know uh, a little bit about that species. And we do work with, you know, very good, knowledgeable, highly qualified Maasai guides, particularly in Kenya, of course, but a lot of that has rubbed off on me over the years. And we can tell when an animal is perhaps not entirely happy with our presence. And we just we just stay away from it. Uh, there's, there's times where you sort of think, particularly with elephants, when they've got young around lions, um, you, you've just got to read their behaviour and be happy that they're not showing any aggression and always have a sort of a, an escape route, if you like, in mind. But I think a lot of the dangers are very, very sort of overplayed. And I think some of that is the, the, because of the, the drama sometimes that we photograph. I've got a sort of a lot of lions that look very, very aggressive when they're looking at us. But it's actually, you know, some of the photographs that I put on the group, they're not aggressive. Half the time they're just yawning and that's why their teeth are showing. They're not snarling at us or showing anything like that. So <laughs> appearances can be deceptive to an extent. But yeah, I have in sort of, in sometimes kind of been in little places where I thought, oh, I'm feeling perhaps a little bit uncomfortable here, but we just rely on field craft. Um, the, I've been on walking safaris in, in South Africa where we got uh, very, very close to a male lion on foot. We were too far away from our vehicle. Um, and, you know, the, the this might be a bit of a cliche, but you, what you do is you don't run. Mm. Um, the, the minute you run, you engage the predator-prey instinct, and mm. then it's game over. If you stand still, then, you know, something like a lion, it, it doesn't want, it, it won't recognise what you are because it's expecting you to run away. If you stand still and stay as a group, the lion might come towards you, but all of a sudden it'll start thinking, oh, hold on, you should be running away. Why aren't you running away? I don't like this. And the lion, you know, hopefully, or, or it did, it, did um, it will turn away and ignore you. Uh, there's times I've got out of a vehicle to check the underneath of a suspension um, problem that we had. And there was a lioness quite close to us. And everybody said, oh, you can't get out of the vehicle. You can't get out of the vehicle. But you, you learn the situation. The lioness didn't have cubs. There was no sort of fight or flight uh in, involved we we weren't in the immediate circle of fear so i got out of the vehicle i had a look under the, the suspension and lioness was looking at me from about 30 yards away and as i sort of stood up and looked at lioness to get back in the vehicle the lioness just turned around and ran away and fled because it wasn't normal for her and she doesn't really associate safari vehicles with um with prey you've yeah. got to be careful of course you, you know it's a lot of it is it's just field craft and common sense yeah and i guess that's something that does come with experience and you know and that's why you have guides and whatever yeah yeah um yeah same it, it, it's very ethical obviously and that's uh, that's yeah. a, that's a great thing and i remember on that point it, it just reminds me about a competition a few years ago i was reading about it and i can't remember what the competition was but it was quite a large competition and the winning image was a um uh, a bird some kind of bird <laughs> Right. After me, that was. This is why you're a wildlife. This is why Fuji Film send you to South Africa and they send me to Blackpool. Um, <laughs> it one of those bluebirds that darts around and dives into the water. Kingfisher. Kingfisher. That Common was kingfisher. it. Kingfisher. What species of kingfisher was it? <laughs> a blue one. <laughs> a fast uh, one. Yeah, very fast one. Anyway, the controversy was that the image that had won um, turned out they baited the kingfisher. So actually, the picture was in a big tank. Yes, and they put I don't know little fish or something in there and set up all of the flash and cameras and everything, um, and they won this competition. And then it turned out that, that uh, and in fairness, to the competition they they then reseeded or rescinded, I should say, the the award. Um, what's your take on on that kind of um, activity? Uh, it is it is something that I have done before. Um, I'll put my hands up, and there's no point denying it because I can't change what I've done in the past. Mm. But I think the important thing is is what we do, particularly with um, any ethics and photography. If we feel as though we've made mistakes in the past, we put our hands up, we admit them, and we try and change our behaviour, and we educate others as a result going forward using our own experiences. Some people would say, "Oh, you're a hypocrite." You know, you're, you're criticising people for doing that sort of photography, but you've done it yourself. And maybe that's a, a valid point, but I try to use that a little bit more, um, be a bit more structured with that now. And, yeah, basically what happens in these in, in kingfisher hides, 
not all of them. Some of them are absolutely natural, but you see these wonderful photographs of kingfishers breaking the, the surface of the water and you see them sort of perhaps in aquariums and the cameras are outside and they're basically live baited with small trout perhaps or minnows mm. and the cameras are set up on remotes with tripods and things at eye level and when i first did it i didn't realize just how clinical it was and i think it's that level of that clinical nature of it that makes it in my opinion a little bit unethical um, I think when you have this happening day after day, day after day, hour after hour, you're creating a massive unnatural food source for mm. what is a predator. And a lot of animals will breed based on the availability of the food source. So you get perhaps larger clutches when they breed, when they nest in, in the spring. And it, it has to upset in the, the, the natural balance of the whole ecosystem but I've also heard stories of them diving into these tanks, which are set up and, you know, the perhaps the water isn't quite deep enough and, you know, the, the bird can in some cases, and, and this has happened that it's been injured, it's snapped its beak or something like that and hasn't been able to grab fish. So there are people that do it a little bit better than others, but on the whole, I think it's just something that I, I prefer to, to not get involved in. Yeah, yeah, understood. Um, yeah, and you know, a lot of people don't probably don't think that far ahead. It doesn't mean that they're they necessarily are thinking. Um, uh, you know, they they don't think they're doing anything wrong. You know, yeah. uh, putting mm -hmm. a tank out and 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 a kingfisher yep. dives in, and you think, oh yeah, well, you know, that's fair enough. But mm -hmm. yeah, when you think about it on the grander scheme of things and the biodiversity that that could be yeah. affected. Then, uh, then yeah, I can I can definitely see the point of that. I mean, absolutely, yeah, I, I agree. I think a lot of people get criticised for poor ethics, and I don't think it's something that they actually intend to go out. Mm. People don't go out with this knowledge, thinking, "Well, I'm going to do this. I know it's not great. I know it's not great for my subject, but I don't care. I'm not going to. I'm going to do it anyway." I don't think people think like that. I think a lot of it is just a little bit sort of blissfully unaware, uh, don't realise the implications of their actions and. It's not something that they intend to go out and do. And now thanks to Alan Hewitt. And part two continues next week, where we unzip Alan's camera bag and have a good dive inside to find out what Fujifilm kit he uses to make these incredible wildlife pictures he returns from around the world. Excellent chat with, uh, with our Kev. And if you want more Mullins, there's an easy way to hear him. He's on uh, incapablestaircase.com with his country music show every Thursday, 3.30pm UK time. If you miss it, you can always play catch-up on the website as well. And if you like your photo podcasts, I have my show every Friday. It's a photo walk show where I walk with your letters of inspiration, words from former guests to inspire you further. And this week I'm talking to a photographer called Miranda Remington who uh, had to stop her photographic dreams in her 20s to be a carer for her son who was diagnosed with autism. Now, having turned 50, she's turned the creative tap on again and has a story to tell. That's Photography Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Right, back to your questions. Kev, I think, I think it's Facebook. Um, Eric Suzuminski says uh, so he posted this just after our 200th episode he says happy 200th episode do you see yourselves doing another 200 <laughs> no no not not at all far from it no um well we have to remember that probably 75 of those were yeah. during the lockdown when we did them every day they were weren't they yeah so in real terms if we were still doing if we did everything once a week we'd probably still have another year to go before we got to 200 yeah yeah yeah. yeah. In fact, I no, say. I think actually, Kev, it was, wasn't it 90, 90 editions over that period? Might have been, yeah. I know yeah. it was a big number. I, I had 75 in my mind, but yeah, it could well have been 90. There were a lot, weren't they? Uh, mm. I, I, I don't see why not. Well, to put that in context, yeah. 200 is basically four years, best part of four years. Oh, God, will we even be photographing then, Kev? Will yeah, it? so that's going to, you know, <laughs> that means that you're going to be, what, 71, and I'll be <laughs> 42 by then. <laughs> Ah, oh, wow. Four years is a long time in photography. I mean, if yeah. I roll back four years, obviously well before the pandemic starting, I think weddings, uh, I'd noticed that weddings started to get a little bit, uh, they rolled off for me a little bit more about three years ago. 
So four years ago would have s- still been in that sort of that that peak period for for me really. So that's how much it can can actually change. I mean, you might change. We could be living on that uh, on those uh, forts out in the on the Red Sands, ten miles off coast of um, <laughs> the east coast of of, uh, of England. Kev, by four then. years is a very very long time. Yeah, um, I still hope we'll be doing it. Yeah, and who knows, Kev? We we might even be back in the same studio by then. Right. Let's go for another question. Um, Dave Chance. Hi, Kev. Hi, Neil. Um, he's got into the lingo he has, says Dave Chance. I have some QQs about projects. I want to shoot more. I'm a, I'm a bit stuck with a few that I've started and wonder whether it's easy to have some kind of project wanderlust when you never seem to finish anything. So he's got three QQs. QQ number one, how do you know when you've got, got a project? What makes a good project? He said, how do you know when you've got one? I assume it means project. How do you know when you've got a good project, Kev? What makes a good project? Um, Are you on a project at the moment? Not really. No, not photographically. Uh, I would say, you know, the thing thing that I always say to people, you know, kind of workshops and stuff like that, is you, you need to have a, a well-defined theme, really. Yeah. But don't let that idea stop you from cracking on. Mm. Um you know, it's a little bit like um, you know we all we all want to do things, and we all we all put hurdles in front of starting stuff. And the uh, you know the the the, the greatest, the, the quickest way to to start things is to actually just get going with it, rather than putting barriers in place such as you know oh, I need a new camera first, or I need to I need to wait till I'm on holiday, or I need to wait until the kids are back in school, or whatever. It's a little bit like that that. That tree question again, isn't it? Or the tree proverb, you know, the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the next best time is now. And, you know, if, if you just keep waiting, you'll just keep waiting. So, uh, you know, I think we put a lot of emphasis on this idea of projects and themes and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's important to have something to look for. Mm. But don't you know? Don't let that that stop you from just doing stuff because that's where a project might just uh, magically appear from, like Mr. Ben. You know, might just come around the corner from a picture you've already taken. You know, I have lots of long-term things that aren't really projects, but are just things that I enjoy looking out for. So they they kind of plod on in the background. But I think it is a case literally of uh, rather than you know thinking right, I need to need to have all of these 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 ducks in the, in a line before I can start doing this stuff. You don't just crack on, yeah. you know, just get on with it. QQ number two: How long should a project last? Well, that's real. How long's a piece of string? Question. I started photographing a a, a vineyard ye- years ago, um, just uh, in, in in a place where you wouldn't have thought you'd find vineyards right next to the old cooling towers at Didcot Power Station. In fact, in that time, some of those towers have come down, um, mm. and and, they, and it started off as just you know you were just looking at a field of nothing. They're the projects that don't seemingly have an end, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, 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 there's no answer to that question. You know, there just isn't. Unless it's a defined brief, yeah. then uh, there's there's no real answer to that question. You'll know when it's the end. Mm. But I actually, as an extra thought to this, Kev, don't give yourself another excuse not to start because you're worried about how long this has to be, how, how long the project has to last. Because, And here's a good example, actually. Phil Melia, I spoke to him last week on Photography Daily. He, um, he was in China working on a commercial project and he set himself aside a few days to work on some personal projects. Seven strangers, seven dates, seven, sorry, seven strangers, seven days, seven portraits. That was great. Tea rooms, he spent one whole day in tea rooms made a terrific uh, project out of that I, I think duration anxiety could be a, another brick wall but then then some of these incredible projects i see kev they're kind of like they, they kind of take flight in a way you're you're not quite expecting some some become very successful uh, book projects i did one about the people of newbury close by to where i live that that became an exhibition ended up in in sort of in sort of portrait commissions. So sometimes I think there's there's money in those project hills, aren't there, Kev? Yeah, I mean that that can be something. I mean I, I don't think I've ever made any money from like a photographic project, um, but it's it's led to bookings, commercial work, and yeah. uh, you, you know other stuff that's come off the back of that kind of thing. But 
yeah, I mean, you, you know, if your objective is to is to create a book or something like that, then I would suggest that you you, you know you get on with the project before you start thinking about the book. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't want to kind of peg yourself to you know certain amount of images for certain pages, all that kind of stuff. You know, and that's that's different, of course, if you've been commissioned to do a book. Oh, you know, if you yeah. if you've been commissioned to do a book, then that's a very different thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, just don't don't put the barriers in front, you know, and and. Uh, you, you know, we all, we often over prepare things. Um, you know, we we literally, you know, I'm 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 the worst person for it in the in the studio when I'm if I've got a, a heavy workload of editing and th- stuff like that. I'm like, right, I can't. I need to tidy this studio. I need to Hoover. I need to, you know, I need to make sure everything's in the right place. And I am a bit like that. I do I do like you know a, cl- a clear desk. It, yeah. it helps me work easier. Tidy mind, tidy desk. But it, it, but it is an, it is a you know. I always remember university when, uh, you know, the night before exams and, uh, you know, we'd be like, right, uh, yeah, I've got to do some revision. First of all, I'm going to clean the oven. <laughs> and it's like, you know, like the oven hadn't been cleaned in four years. It was like the end of the world inside that oven. Oh, and, uh, and all of us, all four lads were like, yeah, well, we better go down the shop and get some scouring pads. <laughs> And uh, you know, you sound like you anything, were li- you anything. sound like you were living in the set of the young ones, Kev. Oh, it was it was it was dreadful. It was no, it wasn't dreadful. It was wonderful, but yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> they probably knocked that house down now. <laughs> Condemned. QQ number three, or this could be an MQ actually. Um, have you started and then found yourself sort of stuck in a rut? You know, it's got legs, but you can't seem to make it work. How how do you go about fixing that? You sound, it sounds like a loaded question. That one, Dave. That you've got a project. And that you're 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 cleaning the oven instead. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's the same thing, isn't it? You know, it's it's that thing about you know just getting on with it and, and try not to give yourself too many shackles around your legs. Don't don't if it's not if it's not working out, move on. Just don't think about it. Just, just do you, something else. You don't realise, but you just made me chuckle when you said try not to get shackles around the legs because I I remember a project that um that i i never really got started i spoke to a couple of people and thought this would be really interesting as much for the interviewing as it would be for the photography i wasn't quite sure how the photography would work out but there's a town close to us not that far from both of us actually kev which is apparently the, the swingers capital of the country mm. <laughs> and i thought i'd i don't know I'd, I'd heard it i think it was on a news bulletin or something can't imagine it would be on local news they used to usually just talking about ducks crossing a road but but it was and uh, and I thought that would make such an I I remember this is going back a few years and that that's but the the project has still kind of got legs so to speak and I I, I still think it would be a, fa- a fabulous project it really would because I think it's that it's that old English thing behind closed the twitching curtains of suburbia, isn't it? That's how you want to think about it. You carry on. <laughs> That's the title for it, Kev. The tw- the twitching curtains of suburbia. Yeah, somebody yeah. must have done that one already. I'm sure. Right, yours. In fact, should we do a book? No. Yeah, we're ready for a book, aren't we? Let's go. We for are. That. We are. So we've got um, "Abandoned Tennessee" by Jay Farrell. Yes, who uh, is a longtime friend of the show. Um, and I think I know. I'm just looking at um, Jay's author page on um, on Amazon, and it's really impressive. He must have uh, I don't know ten of these different books now, um, really? all about aban- abandoned um, places. Wow. Uh, he's got little videos on there. There's pictures of him doing book signings and all that kind of stuff. So good for him. You know, he's really talking about yeah. projects and running with it. He yeah. he had an idea, and uh, and he, he you know he's become superbly successful at it so well done to him um and so uh, the blurb from the book says abandoned structures are places that open the imagination and invite interpretation distressed wood and weathered remnants of human life are crossed by time and animal tracks inviting one to picture what once was abandoned homes and buildings offer a unique distressed beauty while often overlooked by passers-by their skeletal remains act as the perfect subject for a lens of a camera quietly waiting to be captured and shared abandoned tennessee touched by time a continuation of the first title this is the second one clearly then explores that haunting narrative through its display of photos by abandoned building photographer jay farrell uh, readers are encouraged to explore the forgotten corners of the state, see the wor- world through different eyes, and take the long road home. Uh, that was like a, a movie thing. That I like that. Um, where, where the, the line there is said: uh, "Abandoned Tennessee, touched yeah. by time." A continuation of the first title. 
There we go. It's almost a voiceover. Yeah, I can, I, can, yeah. I can. Yeah, I'm a better voiceover artist than you, surely, aren't I? <laughs> yes. Um, yes so yeah, I mean, it's it's a wonderful book. Um, uh, you know, kind of little uh, paperback, well, not little, substantial paperback, really well printed, really nicely put together, and ultimately, it is exactly what it says on the on the book on the the cover. It's places in Tennessee, in this case. Um, of, uh, and there seems to be a hell of a lot of these places in this part of the world that Jay lives, you know, like old schools, old hospitals, old farms, petrol stations, and there's all kinds of stuff in these places, you know, um, it, and, and what I like about some of the, um, the narrative in the book is it's mostly about the photos, but he's put a little bit of humor in some of the captions as well. So, uh, there's, there's a picture of, a, a um, he's on the inside of this building, um, and there's a, you know, there's a door that's fallen over and it's newspapers and rubbish everywhere. And uh, Jay's, Jay's little note to it says, welcome home. Sorry, I didn't finish the tidy. And do I, do I dare climb the stairs uh, is, is the next one. And there's like this rickety old stairs. So this is in the same building, uh, again, full of rubbish and detritus of life. And then, uh, you know, we kind of move through the houses and, and, the, and the buildings themselves. For people who are in that area, he does like each section is introduced with the um, the title of the place or the name of the place. So um, Bethpage Hartsville, for example, is is chapter twelve, and uh, he just kind of moves through all of these buildings, and it's a really nice. There's a really nice little narrative to it, as well as the photos themselves. So if you're into this, now this has got some kind of terminology that I know that you you know, but I can't. Um, Urex, Ulex, Urbex. Urban, exp- uh, urban exploration, Kev. Yeah, there we go, urban exploration. But I think it's incredible because this isn't the kind of thing that I would necessarily find interesting to do myself, I have to say. But I am intrigued by the, um, the you know, I look at things like this picture on page 118 of this old sofa and it's, you know, it's just horrible you know it just looks like it's been through the hell and back. Was it the one out of your uh, your, your digs of university? Yeah, it looks a little bit like that. Um, but then I think at some point, somewhere down the line, somebody would have paid for that and they, they would have loved that sofa and it would have been, you know, the the, yeah. the highlight of, of, you know, bringing their, their comfort to their living room. Um, you know, and what happened to those people? How much did they pay for it? And why has it ended up like this? Uh, you know, all of this kind of stuff really, really intrigues me. I don't know. Um, I'm assuming that in in that part of uh, America, uh, you're allowed to just go and do these things, go and take photos of these things. Whereas I think in this country, it's a little bit more difficult ah, to well, just yeah. climb over the fences. You know? Yeah, well, there is something uh, about urban exploration. And, and I remember through talking to an uh, urbex uh, couple about this, that that. One of the reasons why they're, they're seemingly, and you, you've touched on something which is quite important, but seemingly more buildings that you can go and explore like this in places like America is the vast country and yeah. vast distances between things where you can get whole towns that get swallowed by the dust bowl or whatever and, and are just left because nobody else is, well, it's nothing really to do with that place. It obviously, it, it, it's been it's been consumed again by nature. Obviously, it's not a great place to have a town. We'll just leave it and move somewhere else. Whereas in our country, everything's so much tighter and closer together. So if anything, yeah. if anything like that is lying around, somebody comes along and says, let's build some houses. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a great one. Page 81, uh, there's a picture, there's this stairwell, and above it, it just says hell and an arrow pointing down and this... Yeah. This ink is like all dripping and everything. It's been graffitied. I'm surprised. Just, he, he says it's a good good horror mo- movies could start yeah. here. And he's not wrong, I tell you. I'm surprised, Kev, that you're not into to Urbex in some respects, only because um, because I know your love of history. I know you love history, and I know you're you're genuinely really intrigued by history and and finding things. I think we talked about um, going to flea markets before, and you would spend hours looking through the old postcards yeah i mean it's maybe it's not so much that i'm not interested i'm definitely interested in looking at these pictures so yeah that that piques me but maybe uh, i think the probably what puts me off thinking about doing something like this myself is the you know is is the laws in this country and the you know and i'm not certainly not the kind of person who's going to lift up you know barbed wire and climb under it and you know in the middle of the night and go and explore somewhere um that's just not in my my kind of makeup but that doesn't mean that those places don't exist over here and doesn't mean that there's you know not interesting images beyond that so yeah no i am i'm very intrigued by it uh there's a whole load of these classic ford cars and everything that have just been left to rot and you're right in this country it's the same in spain actually in spain 
there's a lot of um, where we go to in Spain. There's a whole load of ruins, old homes yeah. um, that have been ruined, and old a lot thinkers. of them were left yeah. um, during the Spanish Civil War. They yeah. just upped and left. Yeah. But the law there is that you know that a property stays in the family, but if the family members can't be found or they just disappeared, it just gets left. So there is quite a lot of that up in the mountains as well. You know, and we, we, I do trips around them sometimes, and you find old dolls and shoes and stuff like that. You know, pots and pans. Um, and that's quite interesting. Oh, Kev, with your spookiness, have you ever walked into a place and? found an old china doll head or something i'm sorry that is horror movie word yeah i know i have found china doll heads right out of that one oh god and shoes little shoes little like little girl shoes (laughs) usually just one of them yeah seems to happen a lot in spain yeah Yeah. but yes so yeah i know i am i i I, i'm thoroughly intrigued by it and i think the book got you know and really really well done Uh, credit to jay for you know we're talking about projects and everything he had a fascination with something and he really did turn it into um you know a career changing opportunity which is absolutely fantastic and and really interesting pictures you know really interesting is jay's jay's job now is is this his job did you say no i don't know if it's his full-time job but certainly you know with with something like 10 or 15 books behind him he must be uh you know and they're all they've all got and this is um amazon uk i'm looking at so yeah. amazon us probably will be a, a better place to dig around but they've all got like five star reviews and everything so there's there's obviously a, a big appetite for this kind of um project we should have him on the show sometime we should because yeah. he's shooting all this with fujifilm cameras isn't he i think so yeah 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 it doesn't doesn't of course it doesn't really matter what he's shooting it with but yeah i think he is uh, adds, yeah. adds, adds a further dynamic to it so uh, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Um, and this is uh, what, what? How did you? How many did you say is now produced? I've got to say though, Jay, if you are listening, <laughs> you're about the author picture on the inside. Uh, there's a, t- a Dutch tilt going on with that picture. You need uh, you need to get a new one. Um, <laughs> Maybe the house was lopsided. I mean, these are old houses. <laughs> yeah, they're easy to field. No lopsided fields. Um, yeah. So uh, no, but good for him. So I'm counting. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. My word. Fourteen oh, books. Yeah. Yeah. That is incredible. That is a proper effort, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So really good for him. Really good yeah. for him. We'll leave links, of course, to books and photographers as always. Here's uh, here's one from Eric Joseph. We should have read this a couple of weeks ago, Kev, because it started out with if you make it to two hundred on Monday, here's a QQ or a quick question. Do either of you use the converters for your X100 cameras? We talked about this only recently, you and I personally, Kev. I have Hmm. the X100V and I'm considering the tele and stroke or wide conversion lens as they've got a rather good deal on mpb.com. I was wondering if you think they're worth getting given that they take a bit to screw on and make the camera less compact. I've heard the image quality is good and was wondering what your collective thoughts on them are. Thank you very much, Uh, Eric. Now we did we did talk about this because I was considering popping one onto a, a camera in my bag and having two, two separate X100 systems, as it were. Mm. Yeah, I've used the the wide angle one. I used to use a lot at weddings. Yeah. I used to use it a lot. Um, not so much the teleconverter because the, the X100F and the X100V have a built-in teleconverter, yes. which isn't quite the same. But the the wide angle converter makes the X100 huge. <laughs> you know, they put this this big old thing on the front of it. In fact, both of them make it a lot bigger. So that, that could be a put off for, for quite a lot of people. But yeah, optically, there shouldn't be any difference. You shouldn't notice any difference if you're using any uh, physical teleconverter, wide angle or, or longer. So yeah, it does give you a little bit more of an opportunity. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, you know, if you're, if you really want to get those two couple of teleconverters, are you not perhaps better off thinking of a uh, interchangeable lens camera instead? You know, if your mind is thinking, oh, I need, I want to get a little bit longer, I want to get a little bit wider, maybe the X100 is, has not been the right choice. I don't know. It's, it's hard to tell. But for me specifically, it was because I wanted to shoot. I shot a period of time where I shot weddings on just X100s. They were X100Ss at the time. Yeah. So I had an X100S um, and then an X100S with the wide-angle converter on it. And it's very liberating. So, yeah, those they are very good. I don't know whether we've ever had the specific question as such. We must have done. Um, whether you could shoot an entire wedding on uh, two X100s. Well, I did, have, I did have other cameras in the bags, but I just... I remember shooting one in France. Um, I started off using the X100s at Bridal Prep and I never just didn't go back to my bag and shot the whole day, everything wow. on two X100s, X100Ss. They I was going to say yeah. which which flavour, S, okay. And did you you had a teleconverter on one of them? Wide angle one, yeah. So you had a wide angle on one and the other one was just set at the 23mm? 
The other one was naked. 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 Naked X100. So, but but no way of uh, uh, you you couldn't. So there was no there was no way of there was no longer focal length though that you no. used. No. Wow. I, I take my hat off to you, Kev. Yeah, but people do it, don't they? I mean, you know, Facundo shoots everything at eighteen mil. Uh, Facundo Santana for all of his weddings. Yeah, he shoots everything on eighteen mil. Wow. Um, I... Lots of people only shoot on a, on a one fixed focal length. Yeah. You know, even even Jeff Askoff, if you if you go back in time, he used to shoot everything on I think what would have been eighteen mil, maybe in the full frame days. I don't know, but you know, a lot of people do. A lot, a lot of people. I think it's you know quite liberating and. and uh, you know, I'm doing, I'm editing a whole load of weddings right now. And I would say because I switched to, to, to in the middle of this set of weddings, I took the 18 mil with me, the new 18 mil. Yeah, um, yeah. And the one, the, specifically the one wedding I'm going through right now, I'd say 95% of the images are on the 18 mil. Wow. And the wow. remainder are on the 56 mil. Well, I don't know why I'm saying wow. I suppose, I suppose the only the times I'm thinking of are those, those moments when you're in a, a church or a registry office or wherever you are for the ceremony where you think, well, I need a bit of extra throat here because I've got a miserable old toad that's saying, stand at the back. Yeah, and that's where those those 5% of images come in. They, yeah. You know, the, the ones, uh, and I, I can't remember, maybe later in the day when I get to that part of the day, I'll, I'll see some more, but... But it was during the ceremony where I was using the 56 because I do like to, you know, like to shoot through things and stuff with that 56. Um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, uh, everything else has been on the 18 mil, and you know, I think it's it's great. You know, love it. Love I love that kind of single focal length stuff because it gives a lot of cohesion to your images as well. Yeah, and well, we've talked. Yeah, we've talked about that before with uh, with very well known cinematic uh, um, mm-hmm. cinematographers using. One focal length. What, what about um, what about the uh, the digital zoom that you have on the X100V? When we talk about quality, what what are your thoughts on that? And have you used it? Yeah. So the digital teleconverter, if you like, is effectively a crop, um, but it's an interpolated crop. So um, you will get you'll get good quality out of it, but it won't be as good quality as if you were using a physical teleconverter. Yes. Um, because that's a proper, well, it's, you know, you, you should not notice any difference in quality if you have a physical teleconverter or wide angle conversion lens on the X100s. Yeah. You will, you may notice some quality difference if you're using the digital built-in version because effectively that's cropping in the image. But it's, it's, it's a better crop than if you just cropped it in post-production, put it that way. I'm looking at Facundo's work now. And I, I thought I have a quick look through here as as Kev's talking about this, and you're right. Yeah, it's all it's all one cohesive focal mm-hmm. language. Focal language. Um, it is, isn't it? Focal language. Focal, yeah. Well, focal language. I'm quite proud of that. Um, fantastic. Yeah. Now I see it. I see it, Kev. I see it. Yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, you know, and uh, I, uh, what it's that old thing, isn't it? About you know taking too much stuff to a wedding. And the more you take, the more choices you give yourself. Yeah. And the more you're gonna, you know, miss things, confusion, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Just stick to it. Well, there we go. That's all you need. Nobody get rid of everything else. Yeah. Throw it all away. Don't don't need your dividers because you're only carrying uh, one camera. So just yeah. Take it to the antique hunt. <laughs> Careful, Kev, please. <laughs> right, that's it for another week. Um, we do need, obviously, if Kev's now looking at questions that are five days old, we need you to uh, we need you to step up to the plate, as they say. Um, uh, there are quite a lot that I haven't answered. Are however, they? So. Okay, so we've got, we've got plenty for next week's show. Um, but uh, do keep sending them in. Send your your um, your questions either. Well, there's two ways to do it. You can either send to the Facebook group. There's a pinned post in there. Or you can send them to click at fujicast.co.uk. Um, and, uh, oh, and of course, we should give a mention, because we didn't this week, Kev, to our patrons, shouldn't we? We should indeed, yes. Well done. Thank you for sending us <laughs> stuff. We love you. <laughs> oh, Kev. Right, that's it. We'll see you next week. Music from Blue Wednesday, supporting music for the incredible artlist.io. See you then. Bye-bye. Bye. The Fujicast is an independent Loading Zone production. Email the show with your questions and words of wisdom to click at fujicast.co.uk. Email any complaints and political nonsense to our wives who will deal with your comments in their own good time and in their own good way.